letter to the church at Philippi, and he is encouraging them to consider how to live this life in community together. I'm going to be reading from the NRSV translation. Hear the word of the Lord. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation from love, any sharing in the Spirit, any compassion and sympathy, make my joy complete. Be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Are you empty, depleted, stuck? Do you find yourself doing the same old thing every single day and you wake up the next morning and go, here we go again? It's really easy for us to get in patterns of life that empty us that make us feel fragmented, broken, empty. And I believe this passage today, this letter to the church at Philippi, invites us to consider what it is that makes us empty and what might we be invited toward to empty ourselves of emptiness. The writer tells us, Have the same mind as Jesus, who emptied himself. I believe renewal for us, revival for us, begins with each of you paying attention, and for me, of what do I need to be emptied of. And those of you who are grammarians or teachers don't like that hanging preposition there at the end, of what do you need to be emptied Paul starts with pride. Pride. When you think you're better than, 
superiority. Y'all, it's a sneaky thing to have pride. We can do it in very pious ways to be prideful. It can look like this. Oh, Brian, we really need to pray for Rosie. Her daughter, she's just, she's just not doing really well. You know how Rosie's daughter is. I am so glad that my children don't do that. You feel it? We start off in a pious way with compassion, but it turns around that it's making me feel better about the way I raised my children that need to feel superior, that need to feel better than. Church, it is dangerous. It's in our political sphere. It's in our religious systems of believing right having the right this the right that and the holy spirit is saying everybody get over yourselves will you turn to your neighbor and if you're alone just say it to yourself and tell them get over yourself go ahead i know some of you have been dying to do that with somebody that's with you tim get over yourself ma'am it sounds silly but getting over ourselves is the beginning of displacing pride, feelings of superiority. I believe Sabbath was given not only for the Hebrew children to be a different people and to rest, but Sabbath was given for us to get ourselves off the throne once a week. We live as if we're God in this world. We want the world to orbit around what we think, what we believe, what our opinions are. And church, Paul is saying, empty yourselves of that because you're feeling empty because you got that stuff in there. There's a real paradox here. We feel empty when we have all this stuff stuffed in. Pride is one of those things. Empty ourselves of pride. Empty ourselves of feeling superior. Joey and I had been out of Divinity School just a short time, and we were serving our first church as co-pastors. It was the close of the worship service. We had only been in the church maybe six or eight weeks. We were singing the last hymn, the invitation hymn, and we looked, and Charlie comes walking down the aisle with his parents. Charlie was one of our students, high schoolers, the apple of the church's eye. And so when Charlie and his parents start coming down and they're all crying, we were caught off guard and, and Joey and I both met them over at the altar and they knelt and said, Charlie, man, what's going on? He said, I came to ask God for forgiveness and ask my church family for forgiveness because last night I was arrested for cocaine. So we prayed the song began to wind up and I realized I hadn't seen public confession much in the church so I wasn't sure what I was supposed to do as a preacher in this moment so I asked for clarity I said uh, Charlie what is it that you want me to tell the church and he said I want you to tell them that I've come to ask for God's for forgiveness and your, their forgiveness because last night I was arrested for cocaine. 
So I was a little nervous because I wasn't sure how this was going to go. So they stood here in the center and looked out at the congregation with tears dripping off of their faces. And I said, church, our son, our son, Charlie, has come this morning to ask forgiveness from God and from you. Last night he was arrested for cocaine. And I waited. Halfway expecting people to begin elbowing or sneering or demonizing or feeling superior. But it didn't happen. People started pouring down the aisle and gathering around this family and weeping with them. And we prayed for Charlie that day. And it was a really long road for that family going through the legal processes that he had to face. A long road. But you know what? They did it humbly together in community. That's what got them through it. Our nature is to go home, close the blinds, and pray nobody reads the police report, right? But they didn't. They faced it humbly and named it in community. That's the kind of humility and, and setting aside our own interests that Paul is talking about here as we empty ourselves. So empty ourselves of pride. I, I want to add one here because Paul is talking to people in power here, so he's having to address this pride thing. But the flip side is true too, sisters and brothers. Empty yourselves of fe feeling inferior. Okay, because that equally is sin. When you're feeling inferior to another person, we are all children of God. Sisters and brothers, exactly the same. You're not better, and you're not worse. So emptying ourselves of superiority and inferiority. That's the first thing we do. The second, emptying ourselves of guilt and shame. Guilt is a good gift from the Holy Spirit. Guilt helps us to know we have sinned. There's a conviction of the Spirit that is guilt. I made a mistake. That's guilt. We need that guilt to repent and turn. The guilt I'm inviting us to be emptied of is that old guilt, that guilt that you repented from and you have moved away from and that's not your life anymore and you're living differently. Time has proven that you have been changed. Sometimes that old guilt can keep us from being who God is inviting us to be. Just when you're about to take a risk and do something for Jesus, the evil one will whisper, hmm, if they knew what you did, mm -hmm, if everybody finds out what you did back then, oh, you really think? Huh. Can you feel it? That old stuff that we've moved from, but the evil one wants us to still believe that's who we are, you're not. Be emptied of that old guilt, y'all. As long as you're living differently, let that guilt go. Now, if that guilt is there because you haven't changed, pay attention to that guilt, because it's an invitation from God to be used and transformed. But emptied of old guilt from which you've changed. Emptied. So guilt is, I made a mistake. Shame is, I am a mistake. Brene Brown, a researcher, a, a TED Talk researcher, psychologist, 
is really helpful in this conversation if you want to think more about the difference in guilt and shame. Guilt is, I made a mistake. Shame is, I am a mistake. We have generations of people who have been formed by families of origin or early relationships where they've been told, you will never amount to anything. You aren't worth anything. Your birth was a mistake. We never should have had you. We never should have adopted you. You've caused nothing but problems for us. Who do you think you are? That's shame. And those old voices of us somehow thinking we're not beloved children of God keep us from being the purposive, meaningful human beings that we are to be about God's transformation. So empty ourselves of shame. You are God's beloved. If you don't know that, stay after and let's talk about that. You are God's beloved, just as you are. Not when you get it together, but just as you are. Emptying ourselves of guilt, I made a mistake, and shame, I am a mistake. Okay, so the first one again, I know this is a lot, but there's a lot in this text that Paul is trying to get us at. So to humble ourselves and take on the mind of Christ, emptying ourselves of superiority and inferiority, emptying ourselves of guilt and shame, and lastly, emptying ourselves of fear. Fear is the pulse of our world today. Fear-mongering is how people communicate, how cable news articulates our world, how international leaders posture and position, how religious leaders posture and position. If we can make you afraid enough, then we'll keep you disconnected. Y'all, we are church. We're called to have the same mind as Christ. We are called to be in the spirit of one accord. Emptying ourselves of those fears that turns into worry and anxiety. Now, I want to hit the pause button right there for just a moment. Because sometimes I believe preachers, me included, our message unintentionally perpetuates stuff. You may have anxiety today that needs medical care, therapeutic care, meds, okay? Get that. When the church somehow tells you, oh, you just don't have enough faith or you haven't prayed enough, that's why you have anxiety. No, anxiety can also be a chemical thing in our brains. So please get care if you have unmanaged anxiety. Yes, pray with your pastors and your lay folks. And, and get care, okay? Back to the story. So how do we empty ourselves of the fear and anxiety and worry that creeps into life? I know a woman, beloved woman named Barbara. Barbara married a man who was about nine years older than her. And as soon as they got married, fear and anxiety and worry crept into her life. And she began to be obsessed with where am I going to live after my older husband passes away? Where, where am I going to live after my husband passes away? Will I stay here? My family's not here. Do I move away? Do I sell the house? 
what am I going to do? For 25 years, Barbara worried about where she was going to live after her husband died. And then Barbara got cancer and died first. Lord, have mercy. We've come to use that very real story in our family's life. We call it the Barbara effect. When we find ourselves spending energy and time thinking about, obsessing about things, we call it the Barbara effect. How much energy are we wasting on things that are out of our control through worry and fear and anxiety? We are invited to empty ourselves of that. Emptying is a gift. Emptying is a choice. We are able to empty because of the Holy Spirit in us, giving us a capacity to release. And emptying is a choice that we decide, I don't want to live this way anymore. AA has the beautiful prayer used each time folks gather. Hopefully many of you know that prayer in your heart. It's in our United Methodist hymnal. It's a prayer that grounds me when worry starts tapping me on the shoulder. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Accepting what we can't control, courage to change the things we do have control over, and the wisdom to know the difference. If you're like me, you probably grasp and grab the things you can't control most. And we abdicate those things that we can control, but we want somebody else to deal with them. Part of this emptying to have the same mind as Christ invites us to empty ourselves of fear. Why throughout scripture would we hear over and over again, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. I would argue many times we're most afraid of that which we can't control. So how do we learn to release our need to control? It takes us back to getting over ourselves. My niece, Brooke, had liver failure about 13 years ago. And she became a candidate for a liver transplant. And I tell this story with deep humility and um, holding back a bit because if you've been through either losing a loved one and making a decision to offer their organs, it's traumatic. It's intense. Or if you or someone you love has been on a transplant list and you're waiting, it is intense. So I gently offer this if this is something in your narrative or your story. Uh, I pray for peace for you even as I share this. Brooke, in, in her early 20s, her liver just shut down unexpectedly. We were at Oshner's in New Orleans and waiting on the liver because she was going to die. And about 1 in the morning, the charge nurse came in and said, Get ready, Brooke. We have a liver, surgery in the morning at seven. 
As a family, we gathered around the bed and wept because we knew a family had just given the greatest gift they could give. In the midst of their grief, they made an offering of their loved one's organs. So one of the things Brooke, my niece, and my sister Patty decided to do after the transplant was to fully participate in the communal life of organ transplant donor families and recipients. The first meeting they attended several months after uh, Brooke's liver transplant, they came in and they were trying to make sense of what people were doing. They could tell people were meeting and visiting and um, they were standing next to the director and a woman came walking in the door and they were watching her. They could tell she was um, a little unsettled and then she spoke to some way and then she ran across the room and she grabbed a man and they just hugged and hugged and hugged. And Brooke asked the director, now what's, what's the story? She said, the woman lost her son and she donated his organs and that man has her son's heart. They were captured by this moment and they watched as the woman pulled away from the man and reached into her purse and got out a stethoscope and she put it in her ears and placed it on the man's chest and she said oh how I have longed to hear the heartbeat of my son church we have a world out there who longs to hear the heartbeat of God. And we hear the heartbeat of God through the Son, through Jesus. And we thought Jesus was going to come in and be this person who overturned the government and took control with power and might and military force. And instead, Jesus came and emptied himself, even to the point of death death on a cross that's who our God is a vulnerable humble God who loves us so much that God empties God's self for us church the world is longing to know that kind of God and we are the body of Christ we are the heartbeat of the Son But the only way the world truly sees the heartbeat of the Son is when we empty ourselves, when we get over ourselves, and we quit trying to feel superior to the world or inferior to the world, when we quit trying to guilt and shame others and ourselves until we let go of the fears and empty ourselves. Because Paul says to the church at Philippi, because there'll come a point that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And it is through our emptying that people will know and see and understand. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, all of God's people said, let us pray. Oh God. Gift us with your presence so that we have a capacity to empty this stuff and give us a desire to change those things that we can so that we might bear witness to your heart 
in the world. In Jesus' name.